Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 5. Today, I'm talking about Episode 14, Crush, where Buffy learns of Spike's true feelings. Along with the breakdown of the episode, I'll talk about a Spike versus Spike subplot that plays out through action, the way the main plot moves along and feels well-structured, though the major plot turns are subtle and sometimes fluid, how the conflict in Crush is key to Spike's character, the skillful way the season arcs advance without slowing the episode plot, and a conversation during the foreshadowing section with one of the patrons of the podcast about Buffy's and Spike's relationship, Spike's character arc, Buffy's character flaws, and more. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. There will be no spoilers today except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Crush aired the first time on February 13, 2001. It was directed by Dan Attias and written by David Fury. It starts with Buffy and her friends at the Bronze during a grand reopening post the damage the troll in Triangle inflicted on it. There's upbeat music, Willow and Tara dance, and so do Anya and Sander. Then we get to the opening conflict, that conflict in every story that is meant to draw the viewer or reader right in. And here it relates directly to the main Spike Buffy conflict in Crush. Buffy sits alone. She looks relaxed and like she's having fun watching her friends. Spike joins her. He wears a black t-shirt under a collared light blue shirt that's partly open and the way it hangs almost makes it look like he's wearing a tie. He does have his black leather jacket over it. He jokes to Buffy about rising prices due to the damage to the bronze and says it is not his fault the bronze has no insurance. Buffy suggests that he should find somewhere else to hang out then, and he tells her he might. The reconstruction left the flowering onion off the menu. And Buffy says to him, what are you doing? He asks what she means, and she says, here, at this table, talking to me like we're some kind of talking buddies. Spike tells her he saw her sitting alone and thought she might like some company. She gives him a dirty look and he says, suit yourself. But then he turns back and points out that he was right there with her fighting glory. Buffy responds, actually, you were sleeping the sleep of the knocked unconscious. I think Buffy's a bit unfair here, and so does Spike, who argues he should get points for effort or at least a little consideration and respect. Xander walks up at that moment and says, hey, unevil dead, you're in my seat. Spike, disgusted, leaves. Anya thinks Xander might have hurt Spike's feelings, and at two minutes, four seconds in, Xander jokes that, oh, yeah, and you should never hurt the feelings of a brutal killer. Then he pauses, realizing that is pretty good advice. This line of Xander's foreshadows the entire episode, Conflict. 
Xander offers to buy everyone drinks because he is payday man. Willow, not feeling well, asks for water, which Xander says presents no challenge for payday man. Unfortunately for him, though, it does because Spike has taken his money. Buffy asks Willow if she's still getting headaches after the spell to get rid of Glory and Willow says yes they're still exercising their visitation rights. This worries Tara who warns against more teleportation spells but Willow can't promise that with Glory still around. Buffy wants one evening out to have fun without anyone saying the word glory. So Tara suggests they call she who shall not be named something else. And Tara says, let's just call her. And Buffy says, Ben, because she has spotted him across the room. And Tara says, for example, this is a nice way to remind the audience that Ben is glory and glory is Ben when the characters themselves don't know it. And that's called dramatic irony when viewers know something that characters don't and it can create very strong tension especially when what the audience knows is something that presents a great danger. Buffy joins Ben and thanks him for helping Dawn. He looks nervous until it becomes clear that Buffy doesn't know about the connection between him and Glory. At the bar, Xander upbraids Spike for taking his money, which he worked very hard for. And Spike says, and you're saying I didn't? Xander responds, you stole it. And Spike says, and you're making it into very hard work. Xander threatens Spike, who laughs as if Xander could hurt him. But at that moment, he sees Buffy laughing with Ben across the room and obviously is hurt. At 3 minutes 56 seconds in, the scene cuts to the train depot. A uniformed guard looks in and calls out Sunnydale Station last stop, but no one exits. He goes inside the train and sees that all the passengers have been killed. He screams and runs. Someone or something yanks him back into the train car. And at five minutes, we go to credits. The previous scenes include the story sparks or inciting incidents for both the main plot and subplot. The story spark is the event that sets the plot rolling. Here we have a strong subplot for Spike versus himself as he grapples with who he is with the chip once he has a chance to live differently than he has been doing and that is set off by Drusilla's arrival in town. Drusilla is the one who killed all those people. As far as the main plot of Buffy discovering Spike's feelings for her and trying to shut that down, it's less clear exactly what sets that off. Certainly Drusilla is important to how that story plays out what really gets it rolling is Spike's feelings and those have been simmering for quite a while for the entire season some might argue since season four or since the day he met her I do see this particular episode exploration of that 
starting with Spike seeing Buffy and Ben together. Spike already is someone who wears his heart on his sleeve. And I think that seeing her with Ben pushes him down the road to where he starts taking greater steps to be with Buffy. And to some extent, he did that even before seeing Ben because he sat down with Buffy just to talk with her socially, something that jumped out at her immediately. In the next scene, Buffy returns home. Giles is there with Joyce and Dawn. Joyce tells Buffy she didn't feel all that safe when Buffy was gone. Giles gives her a look. Joyce backpedals to say that then she remembered Rupert was there and felt better. Giles, though, acknowledges that he is barely an adequate substitute for a slayer in the house. Buffy walks Giles to the door and in a quiet voice asks if they should be going easy on Dawn, which is what they've been doing because of all that she has gone through recently. But Giles tells her it's better to treat Dawn as they always have. That will make her feel like things are normal. You don't have to tell this to Buffy twice. She immediately turns and yells at Dawn for borrowing her blue cashmere sweater, which Dawn denies. This is a great way to advance the Buffy and Dawn tension and to highlight it, but it also moves the plot of this episode forward because the blue sweater is featured in the next scene, and now we know it is Buffy's. At 7 minutes 26 seconds in, Harmony tries to entice Spike into bed. He's not in the mood, and Harmony complains he never is, but then suggests they play a game. Spike becomes interested, and the scene cuts to Harmony wearing that blue cashmere sweater, holding a stake, and talking about how she's the slayer, the chosen one. She's going to stake Spike, that bad evil vampire, and she goes on, I'm going to stake you so much. Spike tackles her. At 8 minutes 34 seconds in, Willow and Tara and Buffy are at school and they talk about their reading assignment. At least Willow and Tara are talking. Buffy listens. Willow wanted a happy ending for Quasimodo, but Tara says he can't be with Esmeralda because he had no moral compass and everything he did was for the love of a woman who would never love him back. She also says that you know there'll be no happy ending, quote, when the main guy's all bumpy and quote a little bit of humor that makes it super clear that this is meant to be foreshadowing and an analogy about Spike. Buffy fesses up that she hasn't read the book. She did rent the movie. It's the one with the singing gargoyles right? Willow's worried but Buffy says she was just kidding sort of. Buffy sees a headline on a newspaper a student is reading and grabs it from him. She ignores his protests and reads aloud the part about six murders on a train, severe neck trauma, and at 10 minutes, 8 seconds in, Buffy says, survey says, vampire. 
In the next scene, Dawn appears at Spike's crypt. She wants to hang out with him, though she tells him Buffy won't like her being in, quote, the vampire's lair, end quote, especially his. Spike tries to get her to leave. He refuses to show her where the trap door in the crypt leads, and he tells her he has things to do that are not for a child's eyes. Dawn gets mad she's not a child, and then she goes on that she's not even human, not originally. Spike is sensitive to her emotional pain, and he tells her originally he was human and he got over it. This adds to that theme in the episode of how did Spike grow and what has he become? But for now, he's comforting Dawn and he tells her, doesn't seem to me it matters very much how you start out. Dawn tells him she likes how he talks to her like she can understand. Everyone else is being all twitchy and secretive. Spike tells her he expects they're trying to keep her safe. This exchange shows that Spike likes Dawn and cares about her and adds to their growing relationship. And we saw a lot of that in Blood Ties as well. We know and Spike knows that Buffy is not happy with Spike being with Dawn. So he doesn't seem to be doing this to get in good with Buffy. So my question is, is the show telling us that Spike is not in fact like Quasimodo? He is not doing everything solely for the love of Buffy. There is a counter argument to my view of Spike and Dawn, which comes as the scene progresses because first Dawn tells him she feels safe with him and he chokes on his cigarette smoke and tells her to take that back but she quickly assures him she feels safe because he's so powerful he could protect her and to keep Spike's attention she starts talking about Buffy she tells him he's as tough as Buffy maybe more and Buffy thinks so too also that Buffy worries all the time about what will happen if Spike gets the chip out of his head. This is a nice way to start talking about the chip, reminding the viewers about it, and signaling how important it will be in this episode. Dawn's talk of Buffy works very well because instead of rushing her out, Spike asks what else Buffy says about him, and the scene ends at 11 minutes 49 seconds in. Around here, I start looking for what I think of as the one-quarter twist. Whatever you call it, it is the first major plot turn in any story, and it should come from outside the protagonist, take the story in a new direction, and sometimes raise the stakes. In novels, it often comes a quarter of the way through. In television and movies, it can come a bit later up to a third of the way through. Here I see it as Dawn figuring out how to get Spike to let her stay, which is to talk about Buffy. And this is when it becomes so clear to her that Spike is into Buffy. And that spins the story and creates danger because it leads into Buffy realizing the same thing, bringing her into conflict with Spike. And it is from outside Buffy because it arises with Dawn. 
But as I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, it is something of a subtle turn here. Buffy gets home in the late afternoon and learns that Dawn didn't return from school. Buffy assures a worried Joyce that the train deaths weren't glory. They're not related to Dawn, but she will go find Dawn. We cut back to Spike's crypt. It's dark. There are candles burning, much like that scene in Blood Ties when Dawn found out she was the key and was with Spike. Right now, he's telling her a story about killing an entire family in one night, but a little girl is missing. Everything gets very quiet, and then Spike hears a tiny sigh coming from the coal bin. This is very much the hanging out around the campfire and telling a ghost story, except this was real. And before Spike can finish, the door to his crypt bangs open, startling Dawn, but it is only Buffy. And Spike says, oh, bloody hell. Buffy says she needs his help. Then she sees Dawn there who explains that she is just hanging out and Spike was telling her a story and just got to the good part. And Dawn goes on, can you please let him finish the story? Then you can do the lecture. And Buffy says, fine, quote, let's hear the story that Spike is telling my little sister, end quote. Quick thinking, Spike modifies the story to say that he threw open the coal bin door and took the little girl out and gave her to a nice family who would never lock her up. Dawn is quite disappointed. Spike tells Buffy he was just about to send Dawn home. He knew she'd be frightened. As they leave the crypt, Buffy tells Dawn that Spike is dangerous and why doesn't she get that? Quote, crypt plus vampire equals bad, end quote. But Dawn says it was Spike and he's cool. He's got that black leather jacket and the great hair. Buffy realizes Dawn has a crush on Spike and tells her she can't have a crush on a dead evil vampire. But Dawn points out Buffy was with Angel for three years. Also some nice exposition through conflict and it sets the stage for a later exchange between Buffy and Spike about that same subject. Buffy tells Dawn that was different. Angel had a soul. Dawn insists the chip is the same thing. Dawn also tells Buffy it wouldn't matter if she had a crush on Spike because Spike would never notice her because Spike is totally into Buffy. And Buffy says, huh? And Dawn says, oh, come on, you didn't notice? Spike's completely in love with you. At 16 minutes, 30 seconds in, Xander and Buffy go into that train car. The bodies are gone and there are tape outlines of them on some of the seats. Xander says, so tell me again what we're looking for. Buffy says, clues. Inside, with a few fits and starts, though, Buffy tells Xander that Dawn said that Spike is in love with her. Xander laughs. Buffy says she's being serious. Xander tells her it's funnier if it's true, but Buffy thinks it's creepy. Xander tells her it's not creepy because it's not real. Disheartened, Buffy sits in one of the seats right in the white tape outline of one of the passengers. She tells him this is came out because Dawn has a crush on Spike. 
At first, Xander is upset. Don has always had a crush on him, big, funny Xander, which Xander talked about in Blood Ties with Giles. Because they're talking about this, Buffy and Xander miss a clue, a blindfolded doll on the luggage rack, which signals us that this is Drusilla because she used to blindfold her dolls. Buffy comes home and finds Joyce in the kitchen with Dawn and Spike. Joyce tells a story about a mix-up in the shop involving an extra bill of lading. Spike laughs and Joyce tells Buffy Spike came to apologize about Dawn being at his crypt the day before. Buffy is suspicious that Spike finds these stories about the gallery so entertaining. And when he tells her he came to fill her in on some information, she says, Sorry, all out of cash. Why don't you hit on Giles? Hit up Giles. Spike insists it could relate to the recent murders and he needs to show her. Reluctantly, Buffy agrees to go with him to check out two vampires holed up in a warehouse. Here is an interesting comment from YouTube by Ron Helf. And he is going back and listening to the various episodes. And this one related to Teacher's Pet. And he starts out, Hollywood-style plotting is not the only way to plot a book or film. There are what some might call avant-garde films, and he lists some examples and also mentions political films and ultra-realist films, which have little in the way of plot, are scripted with actors, and have more in the way of, quote, realism, unquote. The Hollywood style, which draws historically on melodrama, became dominant for historical and sociological reasons. I love this point because the structure that I look at and look for is what is most common in commercial or genre films or novels. And that's because that's what I love to read and it's what I love to write. The kinds of films that Ron mentions I'm sure have a lot of value yet I find it very difficult to watch those types of films or to read literary fiction that is uh, not very plot-based because I want first a good story. But it is a good reminder that there are lots of ways to look at plot and story. And then Ron goes on specifically to teacher's pet to talk about how much we learn about both Buffy and Xander, including the all-for-one nature of the Slayerettes, in the episode. And he says, I do think the episode is more comic in tone than dramatic or tragic. And as an aside, remember, Teacher's Pet was the teacher Xander fell for that turned out to be a giant demon praying mantis. Ron goes on, it doesn't do what great Buffy comic episodes do, lead as it does in Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, and Earshot, for example, to intense drama and tragedy. And this highlights another reason that I love a lot of the comedy in Buffy, because it does lead to that intense drama. Also, I've been thinking about the best comic episodes also advance season arcs or at least relationships. So going back to Humor in Triangle, 
versus band candy or some of the other episodes, if you lift triangle out, it changes nothing in the season arc. We do have this sniping between Willow and Anya, which was increased or added for a couple episodes before triangle, but always felt fairly artificial to me. And without it, I don't think the events of Triangle make any difference. You could argue that to some extent with band candy, but I see it as changing relationships going forward because both Joyce and Buffy get more of an understanding of one another's perspectives. And we have this lovely relationship between Joyce and Giles you see this nice evolution of who they are to one another and their respect and liking for one another. So thank you, Ron Health, for your comments. I always enjoy hearing from listeners. It makes it more of a back and forth conversation. If you would like to comment on the podcast episodes or Buffy generally, you can do that on YouTube. You can find that through lisalilly.com slash YouTube on the website, lisalilly.com slash Buffy or on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y or at the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. At 18 minutes 43 seconds in, it's night. Buffy and Spike sit in his car outside a warehouse. Buffy jumps when Spike reaches toward her, but he is only going for the glove compartment. He takes out a flask, drinks, and offers it to her. And Buffy says, ew. Spike responds, it's not blood, it's bourbon. And Buffy says, ew. Spike starts singing and drumming on the dashboard, which Buffy finds odd, but the vamps appear and head into the warehouse, so she and Spike get out and follow. She bursts in. One of the vampires recognizes Buffy as the slayer, and the two of them run away, which Spike says was sad. Buffy looks around, and based on the furnishings, says the vampires nested. So they have been here a very long time. They don't have anything to do with the murders because that villain just arrived in town so Spike has wasted her time again. This is where Spike's feelings get the better of him because Buffy starts to storm out and he hurries to reach the door first and hold it open for her. She demands to know what's going on. And this is 20 minutes, 46 seconds in. Buffy says the flask, the bogus suspects, the late night stakeout. Is this a date? And Spike says, please, a date? Do you want it to be? Around here is when I look at what is happening at the midpoint of the story. And in a commercial or genre piece of fiction, at the midpoint, we almost always see the protagonist make a major commitment, throw caution to the wind, or suffer a major reversal. And I see this revelation by Spike or this confirmation by Spike of what Buffy learned from Dawn as a major reversal for her. And her next words make that clear. She's appalled. She's overwhelmed. She feels somewhat sick. And I think there's an element there 
of reversal because on some level, Spike may not be entirely wrong. I don't think Buffy is in love with Spike. I don't think she has the feelings he thinks she does, but they have always had great chemistry between them. And now that they work together, there is more and more of a relationship. But for now, Buffy says, oh my God, oh, oh no, are you out of your mind? Spike tells her it's not so strange. Two people in the workplace, feelings develop, and Buffy says, no, no, feelings do not develop. No feelings. He tells her there's something between them. She says it's loathing and disgust. He says it's heat. And he protests that Angel was a vampire. And Buffy says Angel was good. Spike insists that he can be good. He's changed. He is a better man because of her. She tells him that the chip in his head is not change. The chip is just holding Spike back like a serial killer in prison. And Spike inadvertently suggests that he agrees with that because he says women marry them all the time. And then he realizes what he said and goes on that he is not like that. He's changed. She insists he doesn't know what feelings are. And he responds, I damn well do. I lie awake every night. And Puffy says, you sleep during the day. Spike tells her she's missing the point and starts to say he loves her, but she holds up her hand and tells him don't before he finishes. This is a huge moment for Spike as well because he has put his feelings out there and Buffy rejected him. Now at his crypt again, Spike rubs his forehead. He's looking sad, but then he senses something, looks around, and asks who's there. And Drusilla says, look who's come to make everything right again. At 23 minutes, 57 seconds in, Drusilla fills Spike in on what happened on Angel, the series, and how Darla is back and... Angel set fire to her and Drusilla, but Drew wants them all to be a family again. She wants Spike to come with her to L.A. It's unclear if Spike normally would consider that, but with his chip, he can't. And he doesn't want to tell her about the chip, so he claims he has a sweet setup in Sunnydale with all the townies he can eat. But Drew tells him not to lie. She knows, quote, tin soldiers put funny little knickknacks in your brain end quote and that he can't hunt or kill anymore and spike rants and kicks things drusilla says i don't believe in science all those bits and molecules no one's ever seen she says her heart tells him he's a killer the chip tells him he's not a bad dog but he is he's quote born to slash and burn end quote spike tells her she doesn't understand the pain is searing and blinding Drusilla says that electricity lies. Before Spike can respond, though, Harmony interrupts them, demanding to know what this is. She thinks their sex game the other night was just the beginning, and Spike has now picked up some cheap queen of the damned to pretend to be his Drudzilla. And she reminds him no threesomes unless it's boy, boy, girl, or Charlize Theron. When Harmony realizes it's the real Drusilla, she chides Drew for how she treated Spike. She can't believe Drusilla has the nerve to come back, quote, after breaking my sweet boo-boo's heart, end quote. Drusilla mouths sweet boo-boo at Spike with raised eyebrows. 
Spike throws Harmony against the wall and says he's done with her. And Harmony says, why? Because she's back? And Spike responds at 27 minutes, 48 seconds in, no, because I am. He and Drusilla embrace and kiss. At the Summers house, Joyce, Willow, and Buffy talk after Buffy told them about Spike. Joyce asks if Buffy somehow unintentionally led Spike on or sent him signals. And Buffy responds, well, I do beat him up a lot. For Spike, that's like third base. I'm not sure how I feel about Joyce asking this question. To me, it seems like something the writers wanted her to ask ask so that we could have another reason to propel Buffy to go confront Spike. And also, I'll talk a little more in spoilers about how it sets up the next episode. On the other hand, especially when this was written, it probably is what someone would ask Buffy that somehow it is her fault if an evil vampire has fixated on her. Both Joyce and Willow are very worried about Buffy, but Buffy says Spike can't hurt anyone as long as the chip is in his head. Another nice moment of dramatic irony because we know with Drusilla back, things are going to change. Willow thinks Buffy needs to talk to Spike again and make it perfectly clear there can never be anything between them. Buffy thinks she made that clear, but she was so thrown off she's not sure. Willow worries that if Spike thinks he has any chance, there's no telling what he'll do and urges Buffy to go confront him. I'm also not quite sure if this feels authentic to me in the sense that I don't know that Buffy could be uncertain if she was clear enough, though she was in the grips of surprise and deep emotion. And I can see her knowing that Spike's not going to just let this go, and they'll have to talk about it again, so better to go get it over with. We cut to the bronze. Drusilla and Spike dance very close, very sensual, very early season two. They see a couple on the upper balcony and head in that direction. The music cuts off abruptly as we switch back to Buffy at the house. Willow offers to go with her to talk to Spike, but Buffy thinks she needs to do it herself. She hopes she's blown this out of proportion, quote, and he's already gone back to wanting me dead, end quote. More dramatic irony. And Buffy does say there is one thing Willow can do for her while she's gone. We don't find out what it was yet because the scene goes back to Spike and Drew. At 31 minutes, 12 seconds in, they move in slow motion toward the couple. Drusilla breaks the girl's neck and throws her to Spike. He holds the dead girl, staring down at her neck but hesitating. Then he watches Drusilla feeding on the boy and at 31 minutes, 50 seconds in, Spike finally vamps out and bites the girl. I see this as Spike's midpoint in his subplot where the conflict really is Spike versus Spike. Now that for the first time since he got that chip in his head, he feels like he can choose to go back to his old life. He has to commit one way or the other 
fight that girl, drink her blood, or tell Drusilla, no, this isn't who I am anymore. So in a sense, he throws caution to the wind by feeding on the girl. It looks like he's throwing all in with Drusilla. Maybe he even feels that he's doing it, but it is a reversal for him because he really does love Buffy and he on some level does believe that he has really changed and this is saying no I'm not I haven't. Buffy enters Spike's crypt and goes down through that trap door the one Spike wouldn't show Dawn to the lower level. Something there is shrouded in a sheet and when she pulls it off she finds the Buffy mannequin with the blonde hair wearing the blue sweater and she sees this wall of photos and drawings of her so she sees the extent of Spike's obsession. Around here I look for that last major plot turn. I think of it as the three-quarter turn because usually that's where it appears and it should grow from the midpoint and take the story in another new direction. Here you could see one of two points as that major turn. One could be Spike biting that girl's neck because that sends the story in a completely new direction. It's clear now that Spike and Drew as a team can pose great danger to Buffy and everyone and it grows from Buffy's midpoint reversal when Spike revealed his feelings and she was appalled and disgusted and expressed all of that to him, going to Xander's point of the danger of hurting the feelings of a brutal killer. You could also see Buffy entering the crypt as the three-quarter turn because that also comes out of that reversal for her at the midpoint and it spins the story because that is what puts her directly in danger. She is in this enclosed environment that Spike is in control of and that's why the confrontation with Drusilla and Spike occurs there. At 33 minutes 46 seconds in, Buffy climbs the ladder and as she pokes her head up out of that trap door, Spike looks down on her. He has blood on his mouth and he says, see anything interesting? She climbs out, clearly thrown, asking what happened. Now she sees Drusilla who says, me. But Drusilla acts quickly and tases Buffy with a cattle prod. Spike, his arm around Drusilla, asks if Buffy remembers his ex and says, come back she did, couldn't live without me. Drusilla leans over Buffy and says, my boy's been feeding again, but I know what he really wants to eat. She tases Buffy until Buffy is unconscious and asks if Spike wants to play before killing Buffy. But Spike now turns on Drusilla, tases her, and knocks her out. And this is one of the things I love about Crush, that it has constant twists and turns. And it's part of why the story moves so well and feels so tightly written, though there are some of those major plot turns that are a bit fluid and though there is a lot in here that moves the season arcs but it also always moves this story and Spike now says I'm bloody well through playing. (laughs) 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate or review Buffy and the Art of Story wherever you listen, or tell a friend about the podcast or about the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story, or post or share them on social media. Any or all of these things will help other people who love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and especially love taking it apart from a story perspective, find the podcast. That choice by Spike to turn on Drusilla does raise some questions about biting the girl and was that a commitment by Spike or a reversal for Spike or did he know in that moment that he was going to go along with Drusilla for now but turn the tables later. You can read it either way and regardless That was a very strong moment for Spike when he bit that girl. At 38 minutes, 22 seconds in, Buffy wakes up. She's in that underground part of Spike's crypt. Her arms are outstretched and she's chained to something above her. She's standing. She asks about Drusilla. Spike steps to one side and she sees Drew tied to a pole across from Buffy. Drew's arms are fastened behind her. Drew tells Spike it's not nice to change the game. Spike tells Buffy he's going to prove something that he loves her she is grossed out but he tells her again very serious that she's all he thinks about or dreams about and Drusilla laughs Spike says I can do without the laugh track Drew Drusilla responds but it's so funny I knew before you did I knew you loved the Slayer And that's a nice callback to Lover's Walk when we find out that Drusilla broke up with Spike and the flashbacks we get during the series that tell us that she started seeing this chaos demon partly because she saw Buffy the Slayer all around Spike and couldn't get over him teaming up with Buffy to get Drusilla away from Angel. Spike insists he knows that Buffy feels something she tells him it's called revulsion and whatever he thinks he's feeling it's not love. Buffy says you can't love without a soul but Drusilla cuts in to say oh we can you know we can love quite well if not wisely. This raises some interesting questions about Angel. When he lost his soul he was still obsessed with Buffy but I don't know if you can say that he loved her. Spike insists he'll prove his love. He holds a stake to Drusilla's heart. He will kill her for Buffy. But Buffy's not impressed. It means nothing to her. And he tells her don't mock this and goes on about his history with Drusilla. She delivered him from mediocrity, never stopped surprising him, and he was a lucky bloke to touch, quote, such a black beauty, unquote. And he finishes with, so you you see it does mean something and Buffy says not to me killer why do I care Spike responds that here's why if Buffy doesn't admit she feels something for him he'll untie Drusilla and let her kill Buffy Drusilla thinks this is a great idea Spike tells Buffy just admit she has some tiny amount of feelings for him Buffy looks in his eyes 
tilts her head to show more of his neck, and Spike is drawn toward her. When he's close, in a low voice, she says, Spike? The only chance you had with me was when I was unconscious. Spike roars in rage. He throws his stake. What is wrong with all these women? Why do they torture him? And he goes on that he knows he shouldn't be with Buffy, but she won't get out of his head. He then blames Drusilla. If she hadn't left him for the chaos demon, Buffy wouldn't be able to touch him. And he turns to Buffy again and says, because this with you is wrong, I know it. I'm not a complete idiot. He says he should get rid of both of them, but an arrow interrupts his rant when it hits him in the chest. It's Harmony. She's got her crossbow and she can't believe that he has forgotten once again about his actual girlfriend. She says she kept trying and trying. She gave him the quote, best bunch of months of my life, end quote. Harmony goes on about how she kept giving and hoping Spike would be a little nicer, stop treating her like his dog. So we have a return of this dog motif. Drusilla called Spike a bad dog. Harmony refers to Spike treating her like a dog. And now we get the third instance of it, the end of the three beat when it gets turned on his head because Harmony says, but now I see it's you. You're the dog who needs to be put down. We're at 40 minutes, 42 seconds in at the climax of the episode where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. This one is all action. Spike and Harmony fight. Drusilla and Buffy struggle to free themselves. Drusilla gets free first. Buffy still fights Drusilla. Buffy's kicking. She's spinning around, though her arms are still chained. It looks like Drusilla might get the better of Buffy, but at the last moment, Spike yanks Drusilla away and unchains Buffy. Now, usually we want our hero or protagonist to prevail, not to be saved by someone else. And for me, that's especially so if it's a female protagonist being saved by a guy. But in a long running series, it is fine if Buffy occasionally gets some help especially since Buffy has been fighting really hard and we have seen her get out of worse situations than this. So I don't think it is quite Spike rescuing her. I still see Buffy is ultimately prevailing through her strength, both physical and her resolve, her refusal to say what Spike wants her to say just because he threatens her. And personally, I think Spike likes that about her and it's part of why he loves her. With the main conflict resolved, we go to the falling action. That's where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. Drusilla says, poor Spike, so lost, even I can't help you now. And she leaves. Harmony has gotten to her feet again, and she says, oh, Spikey. Buffy rolls her eyes. Harmony tells Spike he can say goodbye to this, pointing to her butt, because he won't see it again. And she starts to leave, but realizes she's turning her back to him, so he will see it. And she faces him again and says, unless she's walking away from him, but then she'll probably, quote, you know, back away, end quote, which is what she does as she exits the crypt. 
Buffy turns to Spike and slugs him, sending him flying across the room and right into that shrine of her. All the photos and drawings fall around him. At 42 minutes 33 seconds in, Spike catches up with Buffy when she reaches her house. He keeps trying to get her to talk about this. Spike tells her they had a fight. They've had them before. It doesn't change anything, but she tells him it changes everything. She wants him out of town, off the planet. He's not to come near her or her friends again. He insists it's not that easy. It's not pretty, but they have something and there's nothing either one can do about it, like it or not. But Buffy steps into her house. Spike says, you can't just shut me out. But Buffy has because when he tries to follow her, an invisible barrier stops him. Willow has done the spell. He is hurt and stunned. This is a wonderful reference to that moment when he told Riley, notice that Buffy never did the spell to keep him out. And he was taunting Riley with the idea that Buffy had feelings for Spike or at least was closer with Spike emotionally than she was with Riley. Now Buffy has had that spell done and she shuts the door and we go to credits. That is it for the episode other than foreshadowing, which includes spoilers and a special guest. I hope you will stick around for that. If you find the way that I break down story structure helpful and want to try it for your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash your hyphen novel. If you're not staying for the foreshadowing, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, season five, episode 15, I Was Made to Love You, where an unusually cheerful girl hunts for someone named Warren. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. I have just a couple quick things before we get to the conversation with patron of the show, Steve. First, Joyce asking Buffy if she somehow unintentionally led Spike on or sent signals sets up the opening scene in I Was Made to Love You, where Buffy is so distraught and feels that there is something wrong with her because she attracted Spike. I also love Dawn saying to Buffy, please let Spike finish the story. And then she says, then you can do the lecture because season seven features Buffy giving so many lectures. It's a little foreshadowing of that. Also, Buffy's crypt plus vampire equals bad and telling Dawn it's different with Angel. Foreshadows season six where Dawn will say to Buffy, it's always different when it's you. And there are a lot of situations where Buffy will have a double standard for Dawn. Now, in this particular episode, I think Buffy is right, but it does foreshadow a bit of what will happen with that sister relationship. 
And now to an excerpt of my conversation with patron of the show, Steve. He is one of the first, if not the first, patron of the podcast. He's also a longtime friend of mine who had watched some Buffy episodes before he met me, but he didn't quite see why I liked Buffy so much. He didn't watch it regularly or in order. Then he started listening to the podcast and got hooked on the show, which makes me very happy. It's always nice to know that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is still getting new fans 25 years later. Spike is one of Steve's favorite characters, and also he loves redemption arcs. So here is an excerpt of our conversation. I know one of your favorite characters is Spike, and I thought we could start with Crush. You had said something to me once about the way Buffy treats Spike in that episode. He kind of helped her out in the previous, too. So do you have thoughts about that? Well, obviously, it doesn't justify Spike's behavior towards her in that episode, which is pretty bad. But I always look at it that she doesn't hesitate to ask him for favors that really, given their relationship, what she thinks their relationship is, there wouldn't be any reason for him to give her. And yet he does it willingly. He was willing to uh, take care of Joyce and Dawn in two episodes prior to, uh, to crush. He's always been willing to help her out, but yet she treats him pretty badly in uh, crush. But really all she had to do was say, look, I just don't feel about you like that, but uh, I'm grateful to you for the things that you've, uh, that you've done or something like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but it's a good point because she does act as if they are, if not friends, at least to his point where he says people in the workplace, feelings develop. She does at least treat him when she's asking for favors as if he's someone she works with that she can trust, even if she sees it as this is not my favorite person or we don't get along, but she goes to him and asks for that help for Joyce and Dawn. And then at the beginning of Crush, when he sits down to talk to her, she's asking, what are you doing here talking to me? Like we're some kind of talking buddies. I I guess she wants the favors, but she doesn't want to talk with him, doesn't want to have water cooler talk with him. Well, to me, I think Buffy doth protest too much. So I actually think that she does have feelings for uh, Spike, even at this point, but they are, let's just say, severely repressed in her mind. That could be. I mean, that goes to something else I was thinking about as well with Crushed. Does Buffy, at this point in the series, have feelings for Spike? He certainly thinks so. And I, I don't love him telling her what she feels. On the other hand, it doesn't seem completely crazy that Spike thinks that. So maybe you're right that not even wanting to have a conversation with him in the beginning of Crushed is because she is somewhat in denial or maybe she does sense his feelings for her even at that point and is afraid to keep talking to him. You also had mentioned to me something about how Spike, well, comparing Spike and Angel. So we're going to do some spoilers here if you want. Who overall is is better with Buffy or for Buffy? Well, I, I probably have the minority view here. 
and, and I actually grew to like the angel character, but more watching the show angel, I did not like him in Buffy. I obviously season two, he turns into Angelus, but in season three, when he came back, I thought he basically made all the decisions for her and basically said, I know best, even though she might've been willing to give their relationship another try, he just made that impossible and then made the decision for her. Spike certainly never would have done anything like that. Now, one could say that maybe he's too, too selfish to do something like that, that he would have thought more of his own feelings than of hers. But I think actually he would have put it to her like he's been doing throughout. Basically, he tells her how he feels and he says, well, I think you have feelings for me, but he doesn't try to make her mind up for her. I think that he shows that he's there for her in every way. And so I actually think that the Spike relationship with Buffy is more of what I call a relationship where he would basically do anything for her. And certainly that shows up later in season five with, with uh, the way he withstands Glory's uh, torture. And which leads to my favorite episode ever, talking to the Buffy bat at the end. Of course, he does in Crushed. Uh, he is threatening to have Drew attack her unless she admits her feelings. So there's a, a lot of Spike trying to force Buffy to admit something she doesn't want to say. Yes, that was definitely not his finest hour. Uh, although he made it clear that he would never have done that by the fact that he, as soon as it looks like... Uh, Drew might be starting to do that. He intervenes. So do you think at this point, Spike, he's saying he's willing to kill Drusilla for Buffy. Would he have killed her if Buffy seemed like she'd be impressed by that? I don't think so. I don't think he would have killed either one of them. I think he still does love Drew. That's one thing I've always liked about the Spike character that I did not like about the Angel character. The Angel character... Again, so much different from the way I see him in his own show. He's so rigid in uh, Buffy that he has absolutely no real emotion as I see it. Um, very little real emotion, whereas Spike has a ton of real emotion. And I think Spike, even though he's evil, certainly hasn't got his soul uh, at this point. He is, uh, he, he just has really strong feelings and he can, he can experience love and he can experience other types of feelings and enjoying the world. I think you, you pointed that out in your podcast earlier when you talked about uh, Spike, the fact that he just enjoys life. So I, I think that he loves both of them. I think he loves Buffy more certainly at this point, but I don't think he would have, he would have killed Drew either. I think he would have been flattered that Buffy uh, was, was willing to ask him to do that. But I think he said, nah, I can't do it. We'll just kick her out or something like that. Yeah, I, I kind of would have loved to see how Spike would manage that if Buffy had said, okay, prove it to me, K kill Drusilla. But I have to think he knew she wouldn't tell him to stake Drusilla. On the other hand, Drusilla is a villain. And if she, when she's attacking Buffy, Buffy certainly would kill her if she had to, although she doesn't chase after her. That also leads to Harmony's intervention. I do want to talk about how much I love the side characters in Buffy. And this was a great episode for that because the performers that play Drew and Harmony are just so wonderful. Harmony just is so good at comic relief and she's so spot on with the things that she says and the way she delivers. So that, that actress is, is great. And the one that plays Drew, in my opinion, is just 
out of this world good. Every time she's in a scene, in my view, she just totally steals it. And so I was so happy to see her uh, show up. And even though the character is sort of a combination between crazy and, and awful, the performance is so wonderful that you can't look away. I have one last question for you. And it comes out of, I was just listening to the commentary on the DVD by Jane Espenson, who wrote I Was Made to Love You, which is the episode after Crush, where we see April, the robot. So we see this robot, Warren built. And almost as an aside, Jane Espenson, she's talking about Buffy and says that they wrote Buffy to be pretty self-involved. And I've never seen her that way, although I know that that's how she feels and that that partly ruined her relationship with Riley. So I wanted to get your take on it because maybe I am just too close to the show to see it. I don't see that at all. I think Buffy is, she might be a little sort of like a, in some sense, she's not lost some of her high school mannerisms even as she grows but she's always been not self-centered as opposed to she's always been wanting to help everyone and, and and everything so i i totally reject that although obviously jane espenson is the writer so she she knows how she uh what she intended for uh buffy but i don't really get that but that does raise two other quick things i wanted to point out which is that you talk about the april character and i did mention this earlier how much i love the the later episode with the Buffy bat and, and that word Spike basically lets Glory torture him and doesn't spill and go on and then thinks he's talking to the Buffy bat. That, that was my favorite moment of this entire series. And I think I've said to you, I don't watch a lot of TV compared to a lot of people, but of all the TV I've watched, I think that was the best scene that I've ever actually seen in a TV series. And then. Also, I was going to talk about with respect to, to Buffy, I think that, that to some extent they focused so much and this happens a lot, I think in series like Buffy, where the side characters are so good. Sometimes you lose sight of how good the lead character is. I really can't think of a good example of that, but I know I've thought that before that people take the lead character for granted because they love the other characters so much. And I think that's what's happening to some extent in this series. Everybody else is so good that I think sometimes that takes some of the emphasis off how good Sarah Michelle Geller was that she was tremendous throughout. Yeah. The, the Buffy bot mention reminded me that still sometimes when I'm watching the episodes with the Buffy bot and Buffy, I catch myself thinking that it is a different actress being the Buffy bot, even though they look exactly alike. But when I think about, oh, that woman who played the Buffy bot was so amazing <laughs> and her expressions. And I think, oh, right, that's Sarah Michelle Gellar playing that role too. And I agree she can get overlooked because she is consistently so good at what she does. But Buffy's character, she doesn't have as many quirks as other characters that I think sometimes is kind of overlooked because you just can take it for granted that Sarah Michelle Gellar is going to turn in a fantastic performance every single time. I think I like the Buffy bot so much too, because you get to see her do something that is so different from Buffy and is, and is fun. And the Buffy bot is more joyful than Buffy gets to be, especially in season five and beyond. 
So it's, it's fun to see her play that role. Anything else you would like to share about Crushed or season five before we close it out? Nothing about, nothing about those, but I have to say thank you for, for doing this with me. And also, cause I love talking about this show and I love the fact that you have such passion for the show and that you, it shows in every episode of this uh, podcast that you do. So I always, it, it's definitely always destination listening for me, even though I've already seen those episodes before. Well, thank you. And thank you for being willing to talk with me. It's been a lot of fun. Patrons can hear the entire conversation on patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly. Thank you to patrons especially and to everyone for listening. Come back in two weeks for season five, episode 15, I Was Made to Love You, where another pretty, super strong woman who's not Buffy comes to Sunnydale. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Story or lisalilly.com slash YouTube. You can also comment on the episodes, share them, or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. And you can find book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved. 